media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 as we move forward with uh, our study there. Uh, One of the things that we're prone to, uh, well-meaning, is that we read these different stories in the Bible, these accounts of things that happened, and all of a sudden we see heroic things happen. We see a heroic Daniel. We see a, a heroic David and David and Goliath, and we see all these things, and it's like, man, what a hero. And they truly are heroes. They truly did heroic things. And yet, I can promise you that when we really get down to it, David is not the hero of that story. God is. And Daniel's not the hero of this story. He did some heroic things, but but God is. And this is a story today that a lot of us, if we have gone to church, if we grew up and maybe just attended even vacation Bible school a couple times, we might have heard about these four friends that did something really kind of heroic. They wanted their friend, who was a paralytic and couldn't walk, to be able to walk. They wanted him to be healed, and so they bring him to Jesus. They're not able to get in the door, and so they begin to open up the roof and all that. And a lot of us, you know, I remember as a kid going, man, those are friends. Those are great friends. And they do something really heroic. We do not make light of that. But they are not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. And it's more than just trying to say that, uh, as a, a point of words. It truly is. When we miss the true hero of the story, we miss the real point. And I hope today that you just don't take that from my word, but that you actually see that in the text. If I'm not obedient to the text, then, you know, please call me out on those things. And Bobby, I think those four are really the kind of the main stars of the story. And you are very much, you know, uh, I'll buy you coffee. I'll buy you lunch. We can discuss that. But when we let the word speak for itself, we begin to see that they did something heroic. They did something that we truly, truly should replicate in our own lives. We should be bringing our friends and taking all measures to bring them to Jesus. And yet Jesus is the hero of this story. And we begin to see that as we see it unfold. Can we show that first picture there? Anybody know the significance of that picture? First of all, anybody know who that batter is? Babe Ruth. Anybody know the significance of this particular picture? It's the, yes, Doug, very good. It is the famous called shot. This happened in 1932. It was game three of the World Series. The Yankees were getting harassed by the Cubs bench and by the fans and, uh, Babe Ruth came up to bat. He had a 2-2 count. And then it's still kind of folklore. It's still kind of, you know, did he really point? But he points out to center field. And he kind of the deepest part of the point. The next pitch, he sends 420 feet, almost right where he pointed to. And so this whole controversy has gone on ever since that day. Was he calling the shot? Was he just pointing to a fan? There was all kinds of different stories that have come out of this. Here's all I know. If you are going to call the shot, if you're going to point, and you really do mean I'm about to hit a home run out there, you better deliver, especially in front of 40,000 fans. You better be able to back it up. And today, something that we're going to see in the text is that Jesus calls a shot, so to speak. And he says something, and then he backs it up with the actions that follow. 
This morning we open up to the Gospel of Mark and Jesus left Capernaum at the end of chapter 1. Remember that he, people were uh, being healed and so they were just gathering at Peter's mother-in-law's house and they were out the door. His fame was already starting to, to build and people were just attracted. And so they were bringing every hurt person that they knew. And one of the things that I, I hope that you at least wrestled with this last week is the statement I made. And, and it's not, I'm, I'm not saying there's a verse that just says it this way. So you certainly can argue with it and we could debate about it that Jesus is more concerned with your heart than he is your hurt. And I will stand by that, but I certainly have to admit that that kind of disappoints me a little bit. Because when I have a hurt, I want to be able to run to Jesus and him fix my hurts. And so it's one of those things that as much as we know that that's the reality of what Christ has done, it is truly what is better for us for him to heal our uh, our hearts instead of just our surface hurts. It is one of those things we want a God that, you know, that truly knows when we're hurting. And he does. But he's never going to put a hurt, a temporary hurt, uh, even a deep hurt, over the matter of our heart and our salvation. He always keeps the focus. And Jesus was really good about keeping the focus. A laser eye on this is what I've been called to. And he knew that that calling was to preach the gospel, that is, to tell people the good news that in their lostness that he was the Savior. He was the Messiah that they had been awaiting. And so Jesus never varies from that, even though they want a very different Messiah. They want a political Messiah. They want a a doctor Messiah that fixes all their, their hurts. We would be the exact same way. Before we think that we can get on a holy high horse here and say, okay, I wouldn't have been like that. Bobby Lincoln would have been at the front of the pack. I would have been, you know, especially if one of my children would have had a hurt in their life. If my wife had an infirmity in her life, I would be pushing my way through the crowd, coming there, saying, Jesus, can you heal her? We get that. There's nothing evil about that. It's just not the top priority of Jesus. And so the people around Jesus' ministry had a hard time really kind of, you know, grasping that, even the disciples. And so we left last week, Mark one thirty-eight, and Jesus said to them, let us go out to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came. I came and I will do healing and I will do miracles. But the reason I came is to preach the good news to tell about our real dilemma and our sinfulness and how we need a Messiah, a Savior. And, and that's my mission. And that's what Jesus is all about. Well, now look what happens in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, now just a really interesting side note. More than likely, where he had gone is Nazareth. During It was one of the cities that he would have visited. And now he's returning to Capernaum because in Nazareth... Since he was kind of a hometown boy, they're going, yeah, you're not really the Messiah. And this is where we hear about how a prophet is not welcome in his own home if we kind of just did the, you know, the chronological layout here. And so Jesus is being sought after Capernaum. He leaves because they're seeking the wrong thing. He goes to Nazareth and he preaches the word and they're going, you're not the Messiah. You grew up, we knew when you were born. 
And so Jesus leaves there. He comes back to Capernaum. They come back to Peter's or Peter's mother-in-law's house. It could be either or because they did have some communal living. But that's their home base for the ministry in the Galilean area. And they come back there. And so it says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And look what happens. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So he's preaching and he gathers a crowd. And they're coming for a healing and we see that. And again, coming for a healing to Jesus is not evil. It's actually something very good. But he keeps his eyes on the main mission and that is the preaching of the word. He's preaching them. Maybe this is the best way that I can explain it in, in, in somewhat simplicity. He did not set up a healing crusade where he did some preaching. Jesus' mission was a preaching crusade where he did some healing. Because it was the word that he came it's just, And it's not that he uh, negated the healing. He, he makes much of it. But the preaching, the gospel, the good news was so important. Now, why is this important for us to understand that? Because Jesus came to heal our hearts, not just heal our hurts. And it's so easy for us to get that reversed in our lives, especially if it's my wife, if it's my children, if it's my grandchildren. I promise you, I want a healing of the hurt for the hurts that they have in their lives. So, so let's look for it. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't heal our hurts. It just means that he always wants us to have not just a better life now, but he wants us to have eternal life. Let me give you an example that we can kind of play this out. And this is played out in I Serve Ministries. And it's something that Jeff says, I think every single time I've heard him right before the feeding takes place, that he kind of goes over this. Can we show that next picture? Let's say that we as a church gathered with some other people, and we wanted to give food to a third world people group. And that over the next five years that, uh, uh, you know, we saw this people group and there was a lot of starving and dying that happened there because they just had drought, they didn't have food. And that we ended up giving over a five-year period 132 tons of food. Is that a good thing? Yes. (laughs) It's a very good thing. They, and let's say that they went from 21 dying a day to zero dying a, a, a day because of starvation. Is this a good thing? Yes. But if we never shared the gospel with them, have we completed that circle? No. Because those thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, that had a longer life and a better quality of present life, and yet without the gospel, they will not have eternal life. I I don't want to be simplistic here. I I just want to say this priority of the gospel is the priority of our lives. It was the priority of the ministry of Christ, and if we're going to be Christ-like in that, we keep that as a priority. And so at ISERV, every single time that I'm there, Jeff gets up on the table, and uh, and he says, okay, guys, this food is going to be in their stomach for a little while and, and then gone. It's just temporary. But what we can share with them as we pray with them today, as different ones would come and speak and sing and lead, we could share with them the gospel. And this can change their life forever. It's a matter of importance. In no way do we negate social gospel of saying that it's not important. I mean, if I'm hungry and you give me food, 
Well, now that need is taken away, and I'm actually able now to hear about other needs that I might have in my life. So you see the system here? It all works together. Jesus was fantastic. He was perfect at always keeping those in the direct line of importance. Disciples, not so much. You and I, if we were there today, not so much. It's just one of those things about what our human nature says. The most important wound that we feel for that day gets addressed. Would you not agree that in your family structure that the most important wound of the day and some days, and I'm not trying to be silly here, but, you know, for some, it might be, well, it's a bad hair day. <laughs> that by 7 o'clock in the morning, that is the, that's the most important wound that you may have, and it may be a focus. And again, not trying to be silly, but all of a sudden we're going, okay, I'm just having a bad hair day, or this or that. When it intensifies and gets into our physical lives and other troubles and broken hearts and relationships, we understand that those hurts we want to address. And yet Jesus is always going to address primarily the spiritual ones. And, and then he's going to, he'll meet a lot of those other ones. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted. In fact, we're going to look at that at the end of the, the, the um, sermon this morning and, and kind of see what did he mean by that. So this morning, when we begin to get into there, we begin to see that Jesus is having a, a discussion with the people in Capernaum that's recorded in John chapter 6. Jesus is preaching and healing, and feeding people. And in John chapter 6, we see what they began to put as the primary. Jesus says this, John chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. As he began to do his ministry, he said, I guess, you know, guys, there's a whole bunch of you that came today, and I'm glad you're here, and we will feed you. <laughs> But you came because you heard that we had a really good menu last week. <laughs> John chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And so they said, well, what kind of bread is that? Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus always pointed back to these spiritual needs, not in negating the physical needs, but always showing our greatest need. So here he is, he's preaching, this big crowd comes, and four guys show up with a paralyzed friend. Are they wrong in doing that? No, not so ever. They're very right to bring their friend who cannot walk to Jesus. They tried to get in the, the front door, too crowded. I don't know if there's not a back door, but they try, you know, various means. Eventually, they go to the roof. And it was not uncommon for the, the roofs of those days to be, uh, it was flat. It wasn't pitched. If it was anything, it was pitched just slightly, so there'd be a little bit of runoff from the rain. Uh, they were very functional. A lot of times, people would actually eat on their roof, and they would pray on their roof. Sometimes, they would even entertain on their roof. So the roof was kind of a, a hard structure up there. Uh, they go up on that roof. Uh, I guess they have access by stairs on the outside. And look what it says in verse 4. And when they could not get near him, that is near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the friend, uh, uh, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
These friends have a sense of urgency. They see the need of their friend and they want to get him to Jesus. This is a good thing. They're doing something very wise, very caring, very compassionate, very heroic. What they're doing is good. And they're responding in faith. In fact, in the healing, uh, still, you know, people kind of argue, is it their faith that, that Jesus heals this guy by or uh, collectively all five of them? We don't know. We, we can't really figure out if it's the four's faith. But what we see is that they have a tremendous faith in Christ that he has this ability to, to heal. And, and so these are great friends responding in faith to what they've seen and they've heard. Now look what happens next in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, is again, is it the four friends or is it the four friends and the paralytic? We really don't know. There's questions and you can make a case for each. But he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't cast out a demon like he did in chapter 1 in the synagogue. He doesn't touch and heal like he did the leper in chapter 1. All those are typical ways that Jesus is healed. This man came and he has paralysis. He cannot walk. The friends bring him so that he could walk away and walk back home that day. They want a physical healing. And they are 100% just great to do that. Can you imagine the curve that was thrown to them when all of a sudden Jesus says, I forgive his sins. And, and maybe there was a little bit of a, wait, 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 time out. Do we have to fill out like a form or something because we brought him because he can't walk? I mean, we thought it was obvious. Can't you see that he can't walk here? This is the need. They're not ready for Jesus to say, I forgive him. Son, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus, why is he doing this? What we found out these first two weeks, he is establishing his authority and he's establishing his mission. He makes the declaration, I am the Messiah. Now, could he have proven that he's the Messiah by simply this paralytic who could not get help from any other doctor, has been lame, has not been able to walk, if he heals them and he walks away. Yes, that would draw great attention. But there's a story that's going on here that we can't miss. This is early in the ministry of Jesus, and there are some people that have gathered this time that perhaps were not there the last time that Jesus was in Capernaum. If we look at the parallel story in the Gospel of Luke, we find out who some of these people are. In, in Mark, he just says, scribes and Pharisees. But look in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. It's the same story, just another gospel. And look at what Luke says in this description. He says, in one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Where do the big wig Pharisees and scribes come from? <laughs> so it wasn't just like, okay, you know, we were about three miles away, the next little township over here. We heard that some teaching was going on. We came over here to kind of find out what was going on. We just want to make sure everything's on the up and up. 
Somehow in this short amount of time, word has gotten all the way back to Jerusalem, to the religious authorities, and now, yes, they came from neighboring cities, they came from around the towns that are around of Galilee, but they come from Jerusalem, guys. They sent some of the top brass. Man, you go check out this, Jesus. Now, who were the scribes? In, in basic terms, the scribes were the theologians, and they helped to interpret the law. The Pharisees were the lay people that were there to help, if you want to say, enforce the law. And so the scribes and Pharisees together have, okay, we're going to tell you theologically what you should do. And then the Pharisees, I hate to put it this way, but they were kind of like the strong man. Okay, we're going to make sure that you do this. And so they have a system of interpreting the law and carrying out the law or make sure that it gets carried out. That's what the Pharisees and scribes are. And look at the firestorm that is created with the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus does by, by, by announcing, Son, your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 6 and 7 back in Mark 2. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. In other words, they were not saying this out loud at first. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this is very, very critical to this story, guys. This verse is very critical. Were they correct that only God can forgive sins? Yes. Would they be correct that if you were not God, and yet you said that sins were forgiven, that that would be blasphemy? Yes. They're really correct on every term except for one. And it's the very point that Jesus is trying to make. I am God. I am this Messiah. You know, we can jump all over the Pharisees and scribes and say, man, these were just lost people. No, they were earnest in what they were about. Interpreting the law and carrying out the law. They were really, really earnest. Much more zealous, maybe, than we would be. They weren't lazy in their following of what they believed. And so they make a statement here and they said, this man, why does he speak like that? Because the, the worst thing that you could be accused of by the f- scribes and Pharisees, blasphemy. Like if you had to make a list of top ten things not to do, blasphemy was the number. Now why would that be? Why do you think blasphemy would be the number one thing? And, and again, why do you think that was so offensive? Because it's, again, it's directly against God and the character of God. Who are you to even address God and address God in such a matter? This is the number one thing you did not want to be accused of. Walking too far on the Sabbath? (laughs) Ah. Having to do this? All this. They would enforce this. Remember, they're interpreting the law. They're carrying out the law. All those things were going to be very important to them. Blasphemy, number one. So this creates a firestorm. The scribes knew that God and God alone would, could forgive sin because of who the sin was against. He alone is holy, perfect, creator God. And yet this was the very declaration that Jesus was making here. Jesus was saying, I'm not just another preacher. I'm not just another person going from town to town preaching. Jesus was declaring that he was God. You see, most of the world affirms in the person of Jesus. 
You go to almost any religion and they're going to have, because they have to deal with it historically. In the same way that you and I have to deal with that there was a man called Muhammad. He was historically, we, we can look at history records, there was this one. Do we believe that he was a prophet? Do we believe that in the same way that an Islamic person would put Muhammad in a special place? We, we may not agree with that, but, but it would be unintelligent to say, well, that Muhammad, he didn't even exist. They have to deal with Jesus in the same way that we have to deal with Muhammad, Confucius, other people that historically we know did exist. Then we have to clarify, were they what they were claiming to be? And that's what they're doing with Jesus here. You see, when we begin to begin to look at this, they, we see that people do affirm that Jesus was a real person. They do affirm that he was a great teacher, that he was miraculous and, and do, uh, could do great healings. But here's the difference. Many people and religions affirm that Jesus was godly, but they do not affirm that he was God. You see the difference? There's a difference between saying that Jesus is godly and that he was God. And Jesus here says, no, I'm God. I'm going to call the shot. I'm, I'm going to tell you who I am, and you can refute it. You don't have to believe it, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make any mistake about who I am and what my mission is. Look what happens next, verse 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus sees their disbelieving hearts, and this is where he calls the shot. He says, basically, which is easier? And let's go back to Beirut. Is it easier for Beirut to say, you know, I could hit a home run here if I wanted to? Or for him to say, I'm hitting a home run, and then he has to do it. Jesus says, you know, I just said, son, your sins are forgiven. How can you prove that I did or did not do that? So look what happens in verse 10 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He said, there's no really way that you can prove if I actually can forgive sins or not, but, but I'm going to tie this physical thing that you can see to, the, to make it, do you see the validity of the claim that I'm making? And he uses this term, son of man, which is going to be one of Mark's favorite terms. He's going to use it 11 times throughout the gospel. And it is a messianic title. Even though it says son of man instead of son of God, it is a title that we see from Isaiah and from Daniel and from different places. The people may not have always been familiar with that, but who amongst that group would have been very familiar with this term, son of man? Yes. These scribes and these Pharisees, (laughs) you know what he's claiming to be? He thinks he's the Messiah. He he, he thinks he's this one that was prophesied back in Daniel. He thinks he's, he's lining himself up to be this prophet or this one that is coming in the prophecy of Isaiah. They would have been very familiar with this. And in this, Jesus is declaring his, both his deity and his purpose. He had come to die for their sins so that they could be forgiven. 
This is a hard concept. We saw this even when we were in our last series about what does it mean to take up your cross, to deny yourself, take up your cross. Remember the conversation when Jesus goes to, to the disciples and says, okay, who do people say that I am? Well, they say that maybe you're John the Baptist, come back, you're this, you're a prophet, you're, you're this. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus was using that as a clarifying statement. And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the holy God. He makes that proclamation, and yet Peter still doesn't capture the essence of the mission. When Jesus says, okay, I must die, but I'm going to be risen in three days, Peter goes, not on my watch. This isn't going to happen. I'm sure that the paralytic and the four friends, I'm sure that there was a little rub. I mean, I can only personalize it, okay? Carly has an infirmity, and I make my way all the way to uh, see Jesus. I kind of fight through the crowd. I can't get there, so I dig a hole in the top of the thing, and, and I'm, I'm lowing Carly down. I put a lot of effort in because I'm earnest in my desire for my wife to get healing for whatever the infirmity is. So I can only imagine the frustration that I would feel if... Jesus said, her sins are forgiven. Great, that's great theologically. She needs this though. This is the need. This is why I came. I can imagine that there was a little bit of a rub there between these four friends that were so earnest and, and so faithful to bring their friend to Christ. And yet what happens? Hey, we came here for you to heal his legs. Legs, Jesus, legs. <laughs> we didn't say anything about forgiving his sins. Mark two twelve. Jesus commanded him in verse 11 to, to, to take up his bed and walk. Verse 12, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like what? When we go back a couple weeks and they saw a leper healed, go back a couple weeks, they saw a, a demon cast out. They'd seen miracles. What did they just witness that they had never seen before? The complete mastery of the Messiah being about his mission. So what's so the application? Okay, maybe you would be in agreement that, oh great, I, I see the story now. What is the application here? I think it's a really, really important one. When there's hurts in my lives, I want a Jesus that heals hurts. When I see hurts in my wife or my children or my grandchildren, I want a Jesus that heals hurts. And I would like to think that I have the kind of faith and I'm the kind of husband and, and father and grandfather that would dig up, you know, the roofs to bring my children to Jesus. But if I bring them because they can't walk and they're paralyzed, I know what I have in mind. <laughs> Heal their legs. <laughs> I mean, do you identify with that? That when you're brokenhearted, when you see brokenhearted people around you, Is it okay to pray for those things? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. 
But what Jesus is trying to teach us here, what he's trying to teach the disciples there, what he's trying to teach even the tribes and the Pharisees, is the ultimate purpose by which he comes. Because here's how we set ourselves up, if not. Does Jesus heal every cancer? Can Jesus heal every cancer? Oh, we got a dilemma on our hands. If we have a healing Jesus and healing Jesus, and that's the primary function, and we know that he can, or we say that he can, but he doesn't do all, then, then guys, we have a little dilemma on our hands. And I've sat down as a pastor with weeping widows, with crying parents, who cannot grasp or understand why Jesus didn't heal their hurt. And I promise you guys, they didn't teach us the answer to that one in seminary. I don't have the answer to that. The only thing that I can give them at that moment is that, you know, that there's this hope, that there's this ultimate healing that comes through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Please do not hear in any way, shape, or form that we should not be praying for people with cancer, that we should not be praying for people that are brokenhearted, that we, that there's not ministry there that can enable us to actually share the hope of the gospel. But we have to be very, very careful that we do not, as they could have done, say, okay, man, I, I came for the legs. And yet you're just doing this other thing. Seems as though Mark is reflecting on something bigger than he is. Jesus has every ability to fix broken bones and broken bodies and broken hearts. There's a a verse in Isaiah 61. One. Either read it up here or open your Bibles because this is really, this is the key and then we'll close. This is the prophecy in Isaiah, one of the prophecies in Isaiah about the Messiah who's going to come. And it's the description of who this Messiah is and his mission. Now look what it says about this mission, the mission of this Messiah who is prophesied 700 years, 600, 700 years before Christ actually comes. Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now this is like the voice of Christ. Okay, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who have been bound. Now look what he says there. Good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, opening the prison to those who are bound. Could that have a physical nature to it? You're broken, or a, or a, a nature that is, you know, if you're brokenhearted. Could you interpret it that way? Yeah. And it, it, it does have some application. Could you, if you were a Jewish person and the Roman government is telling you all, you know, this has authority over you, could you interpret this to say, to proclaim liberty to the captives? Oh, he's going to come and he's going to liberate us. Could you interpret it that way? Certainly you could. Because that's the, that's the need that's right there in your face. Here's the question, guys. How do you interpret this? What do you think Jesus meant? What do you think this prophecy about? That truly, that every 
wound of the body was going to be healed. That the captive, you know, the people that were kind of one government over another government, that Jesus was going to come up and free them from that government? Or do you think that perhaps that at the real root of this, that Jesus meant that these were spiritual things? And I will come and bind up those who are captive. Captivated by then, by what then? Sin. And you're a captive of sin. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. When you're lost without Christ, are you in prison? Are you bound? Well, Pastor, I don't, I don't know that I really agree, you know, with your interpretation of that. How do you know that this is really what Jesus was, you know, that this is, you know, a prophecy of him? I'm glad you asked. And so instead of the pastor giving you his answer, let me let you, let's allow Jesus to answer this himself. Go to Luke chapter 4, and then we'll close. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And I think I only have the slide for the last one, maybe, on there, Jeremy, but, but open up your Bibles and see this. You know, Jesus went from town to town and he, and he taught in the synagogues. Do you know what his first reading was? Luke chapter 4. Now, Luke chapter 2 and 3, Christmas story, right? So he, then he begins his ministry. Early in his ministry, look what happens. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And he came to Nazareth, that is, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he was there, in his, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Remember that? And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, Isaiah 60, 1, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads this very one. Now look at verse 20 and 21. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on upon him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is who I am. This is who I am, guys. This is my mission. Please don't go away today. Think of Bobby. So you're, so you're saying God doesn't care about our broken hearts and broken relationships? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. Yes, He does. If there's sickness and infirmity in my family's life, I am going to pray to my God for healing and complete healing. I am going to focus. God, will you please? I know you can. And, and I would want you to show mercy on myself or on Carly, our kids. This all lines up with Scripture. And yet the ultimate calling, the ultimate mission of Christ is the salvation of my soul. And so if I put myself in that position and all of a sudden he doesn't heal my wife, he doesn't heal my body, he doesn't heal my grandchild, has God let me down because he's failed to do something that he promised to do? they can come and put their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. That's hard. 
instead of pointing fingers at, at these people, go, man, why don't they just get it? Why don't they? Because we don't get it. We want a Jesus that heals our hurts. And he says, I've come to heal your heart. Not ignoring your hurts, but I want the primary thing. Because the worst thing, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Jesus is very clear about his ministry. May we be very clear about his ministry to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, we make much of these four friends. All that we would be that kind of friend. All that we would have that kind of friend. And yet, Father, help us not to miss the hero of this story. That the hero of this story, Father, is Jesus Christ. And he makes bold proclamation even to the authorities sent from Jerusalem to check him out. I am the Messiah. Father, today, help that be our heartbeat, Father, our motivation. Father, next time I come and I just want you to heal my hurts, Father, will you expand my vision and, and, Father, expand my mind that I would be able to see that I'm already the most blessed of all men because you have saved me from my sin? And I'll still pray for, for my hurts and I'll still pray for my family's hurts. And I thank you that you do bring peace to those situations and you do bind up even those that are brokenhearted in relationships. Father, I thank you this morning that you looked beyond my present needs and you saw my eternal need and you brought your son and he died for me and he rose again. Father, thank you for giving us a Messiah, a Savior. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in the hope and the power of his name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.